One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a T-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Coming up on Chopper's Politics. TUC General Secretary. Have you ever kissed a Tory? <laughs> Chris, if you're offering... Oh, Francis, my politics are my own. Hello and welcome to Chopper's Politics. I'm Christopher Ho, 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 Hope. Welcome to a festive edition of your favourite podcast, Chopper's Politics Podcast, here from the Red Lion Pub, surrounded by garlands of holly. Wonderful, isn't it? Outside, though, Britain has ground to a halt, with strikes affecting the NHS, trains this weekend and more. It's a very difficult time. And with us this week on Chopper's Politics, we have Francis O'Grady, the General Secretary outgoing of the Trades Union Congress, in her final interview before she ascends to the House of Lords, and Robert Halfon, a Minister of State in the Department for Education and also a member of a trade union with his view on the strikes and what the government should do. And finally, it is Christmas, and with us to discuss a ghost of his Christmas past is Sir Geoffrey Cox. In his first interview since being embroiled in a row about second jobs over a year ago. And please do stay around right to the very end of this podcast for an extra special festive reading from Sir Geoffrey Cox. But first, Frances O'Grady was brought up in Oxford in a family steeped in trade unionism. Her dad worked in the British Leyland plant in Cowley, now the mini plant, of course, owned by BMW. And her brother was a miner involved in the 1984-1985 miners' strike. She stands down this month as General Secretary of the Trade Unions Congress after nine years and goes up to the House of Lords next month. For this week's Chopper's Politics, I met Frances O'Grady in her office in Congress House. Frances O'Grady, welcome to Chopper's Politics podcast. Thank you very much. Great to have you here. Your final exit interview, your final interview as TUC General Secretary. With you, Christopher. With me. Um, I'm at my usual place on the sofa when I always talk to you every September before your annual, your annual conference. We'll come on to, you know, um, the, the past and the future in a minute. But let's talk about the present, which is strikes. Do you understand why ministers can't afford to pay and won't pay double-digit pay increases? Absolutely not. And I think that is a source of real frustration to union leaders who are representing millions of workers who feel insulted really that working people are being told that we're somehow to blame for inflation when I think most people know that this has been caused by global factors it's uh, rising food and energy Mm. prices problems with supply chains it is not the fault of working people But, but given that's the cause why not then just everyone sit tight and wait till it comes down next year when those those threats to the economy have passed. Because working people have had over a decade of stagnating pay and real pay cuts and everybody needs to put food on the table, needs to pay their bills and they simply can't afford to see their wages squeezed even more. And I think what people find really difficult to understand is why government ministers won't talk to workforce representatives about pay. Um, Because they can't? Because they're not the employers? 
Yes, they can, because they set the remit for those independent pay review bodies that they've been hiding behind, because, again, most people now know that actually it's the government that sets the funding envelope, it's the government that writes the remit, and it's the government that can decide whether or not to take those recommendations. And, of course, they haven't always followed those recommendations in the past. In fact, the health secretary in 2014 rejected them. Who was the health secretary? The chancellor. The now Chancellor, Jeremy Hunt. So I think there's a real frustration. We don't need to be here. There's a deal to be done. But negotiation is something most of us have to do in our lives in one form or another. It involves give and take, it involves compromise, and it involves coming to a fair deal. And, you know, what's more, this would be better for the economy because we're in recession, demand is shrinking. How are all those consumer-facing businesses going to survive through the winter if people don't have money to spend? So it's really important that we sort this out and have a proper negotiation. Don't you worry that could be inflationary, Francis O'Grady? Well, again, this is simply nonsense. And lots of economists, including, you know, the former permanent secretary to the Treasury, have pointed out that improving public sector pay does not cause inflation to rise because, of course, public services aren't selling things. So improving wages doesn't force the price up because healthcare is free. That's the whole point. Wouldn't you be having the same problem even if Labour were in power? They're saying that 19% for nurses is unaffordable. Is that unacceptable to you for a Labour leader to say that? I think what we're all concerned about is that working people who've taken hit after hit after hit over a decade don't experience another hit this year. Clearly, the nurses were also talking about the fact that they are £5,000 a year worse off in real terms than they were in 2010. And they were looking for some indications, some sign that there would be some catch up on the money that they have lost over a decade. But I think all of the union negotiators I speak to Everything's on the table. That's the point Mm. of a negotiation. Clearly, people want to protect pay, want to protect themselves against pay cuts. But in terms of what happens next, there is scope to discuss that because, you know, apart from anything else, one of the key worries for our NHS and public services is that TUC evidence has shown we've got one in three public servants Mm. now actively thinking about quitting because it's not enough pay and too much stress and not enough but staff the, the to share The easy thing it. to do is to give money. The easy, it's easy to, to try and borrow on future, future tax receipts. The hard thing is saying no. Isn't Rishi Sunak taking the hard choice here and saying no to nurses? I, I mean, that's never, no, not, not a good place to be in politics. It's not a good place to be in politics to say no to nurses when you're lifting the cap on bankers' bonuses. That's not a good look. It's not a good look to say that you won't even speak to women leaders, because it is primarily women leading unions representing it's a not, predominantly it's not women. Well, you have to oh, wonder. Well, I don't know, Christopher. I mean, I can't imagine why government ministers aren't saying, of course, we'll discuss pay. So if it was male men leading those unions... Well, it does feel like women are being ignored. I mean, the, the biggest union in the country representing public service workers, Christina McInnie, the 
Nurses Union, RCN, Pat Cullen, these are very skilled, impressive negotiators. Why on earth would you say, I'm not even prepared to meet you to discuss pay? And that's but, linked, really? Is that linked to them being women? Not just the fact that they, they feel they can't meet because well, it's not Well, why even fight? leave that suspicion in people's minds? You know, this, this is a workforce. Nine in ten mm. nurses are women. Two-thirds of public sector workers are women. There is a sense that women want to be shown a bit of respect. And I mm. would have thought the least you could do is say, yes, we do recognise that you are very often an equal breadwinner, sometimes the only breadwinner in your family. You have a deep sense of vocation, but yes, you still need to pay the bills. You mentioned the bankers, and we're going to speak to your elected representative. Of course, and you mentioned you have the bankers' bonus cap there. You are aware that actually it will bring ordinary pay down for most bankers because having a two and a half times uh, limit on bonuses meant that the, all, the, all the basic pay increased for bankers and it was unearned. Now it's all earned. Well, I've, so I've you, always supporting thought, it, Francis uh, Grady? The, the alternative was not to lift the cap on bankers' bonuses. The alternative was to put a cap on the whole remuneration package. And of course, that's of course. what the government could have done. But more importantly, they could have made different choices about raising tax on wealth rather than sticking it to workers who frankly have had enough and there are ways that we could quite simply raise sufficient monies this is happening in other countries where they're raising what they call solidarity taxes on the very wealthy and very big corporations again i think most people now know people like amazon don't pay their fair share of tax. They know that if we did equalise capital gains tax, uh, which is paid on selling shares, for example, with income tax, that that would raise a lot of money too. And, you know, most people feel that's fair. They feel it would be fair because if you have to work for a living, why should you be paying a higher rate of tax than people who are getting their income but not you, through but earning probably it, but see, just selling stuff. You see more avoidance, the tax take, tax take would yeah. fall. I've don't heard you, don't that you worry argument about the pie so often. Why, why, is so it, why is it so often when we want the very wealthy only to pay their fair share that we're told there's no point even trying because they won't follow the law? I mean, that seems to be an extraordinary argument to put. We wouldn't say that. In terms well, of Labour could, Labour could be in charge in a few years' time. Back to that point, 90% is unaffordable, says Keir Starmer. Well, well, how do you react to that? I, th- I think, uh, you know, whoever's the government in power is going to have to come up with a fair deal for working people. What Labour has promised is a new deal that involves much stronger workers' rights. Critically, they've said that they would negotiate with workers, and that matters. That's about being shown respect and mm. having a voice. But also that they would introduce fair pay agreements, starting with social care. You know, when you think about what social care workers did throughout the pandemic, often with totally inadequate PPE, and as we've learned, a fair few people earned a packet of selling dud PPE. Uh, no one thinks that's, no one thinks that's a good parish. idea. Well, um, the you know, upset, the, fact, the fact that social care workers are on less than ten pounds an hour, you know, it's 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 it makes me feel ashamed. Yeah, well, that's the a country. lot, a lingering, a lingering big big problem. Yeah. One we can sort though. Yeah, we can. I mean, and, and the government can do. The 10 minute care issue is a big re- issue for our readers, mm. as well as Unison. Yes. The carers doing it, and our readers hate it, or the elderly readers. Yeah. We have. Well, exactly, because. Again, I think what ministers don't always get is that for for most of us, Mm. ordinary people, the staff are the service. And if you treat the staff well, the quality of service will improve. And that's what we all want to see. Keir Starmer says he doesn't want his MPs to go on picket lines. 
Do you approve of that? Well, I've always said that um, the point of the picket line, the main point of the picket line, is to persuade workers, to persuade fellow workers not to cross it. And I think it is important that we remember that. So MP shouldn't be on it anyway, therefore, for fellow workers. No, everybody's welcome from any party, Chris. um, Any walk of life is welcome to show their solidarity to workers. But its primary purpose is not to provide a backdrop for Twitter photographs. Its its primary (laughs) purpose is to talk to workers, workers to talk to workers. Did you want to see more members of the public joining, joining NHS picket lines? Well, we've had enormous mm. support from the public, yeah. actually. Speaking the horns, quite, but on the actual quite lines. stunning. Oh, yeah. yeah. But yeah. lots of people stopping by, asking workers what's, what's yeah. the issue, yeah. trying to find out more. I think that's great. It's people showing an interest and overwhelmingly support. It's great to be here in Congress House, surrounded by um, all your packing boxes. <laughs> yeah. your final interview. Uh, just remind me, is the TUC affiliated to any political party? No, we're not. You're not, are you? No. So how many Tory um, MPs have been speaking at your annual conference in your nine years as a leader? Um, I can't think of the you single one, Chris. However, I do, so I do meet Conservative MPs on a regular basis. And you may remember, Chris, that when the pandemic kicked off and the TUC came up with a ready-made design for a furlough system... Mm-hmm. Uh, drawing on the best around Europe, that we were in and out of the Treasury on a regular basis. So they, they liked you then? Uh, they certainly then. did. And, and you may also remember that we suggested that the government convene a National Recovery Council of unions, of employers, of ministers, because we could see that as we came out of the pandemic, we would hit some tight corners mm. and that, you know, it could only improve the quality of decision-making to have everybody sat around focused on what's best for the country, what's fair, what can we deliver, what are the problems that we we're all, need we're all to anticipate together. now. Well, I, Not anymore, I, though, I just, are we? Look at the strikes. Well, what a missed opportunity, because this was predictable. And, you know, it seems to me that had the government taken a different approach in the way that it did at our suggestion around that furlough scheme, bring together the CBI, the TUC, government together. Let's let's agree what will work for workers to prevent mass unemployment. That was a real fear with companies phoning me up talking about, you know, being on the brink protecting livelihoods but also ensuring that those companies would be able to bounce back quickly now I think that was a success story I think Rishi Sunak the Prime Minister talks about it as a success story what I think he hasn't twigged is because we were all sat around together that's why it worked Mm. you know that is more of that I mean that kind of went away with Liz Truss maybe you might come back yes with the current well that and you know a great big hole in the public finances frankly Mm. over those what was it 45 days or 49 days 49 days okay well it created a big mess but it's it's back now Um, it's back to where it was before the pound's back to where it was when Boris Johnson was Prime Minister yeah um you know, it was a mistake. Uh, I think that's that's the least you could say, yes. Back to your um. time, though, as, uh, as TC <laughs> General Secretary. Have a drink later, Sir Francis, about the Tories. It's too depressing for everybody. Um, nine years as General Secretary, you broke the glass ceiling. You know, I there did. should be a statue quite, of you quite. somewhere. <laughs> Yeah, I'm not going to hold my breath for that. <laughs> um, well, no, but I... How do you feel? I mean, it's 
pretty good. Oh, do you know what I really love is the fact that over those 10 years, we've seen so many other women come up through the ranks. Well, you, you named them there, all these general secretaries now. Yeah, it's, it's you because know. Lots of women, lots of women are, of course, union members. Is that, is that the majority of members? The majority now. I think that's right. Yeah. So, you know, it's always been, for quite some time, it's been 50-50, but we're now at the point where women are more likely mm. to be union members. And we're making some big breakthroughs in gig economy areas like Uber, Deliveroo, Amazon. You know, so things mm. are shifting. It, we're growing modestly, but we're growing. And yeah, I love that diversity because it makes us stronger. And, you know, and it's about time as well. You've got all these brilliant, brilliant women who are now in positions of power. And, and the men don't, men don't like it, Francis. <laughs> Some of them do. Some, Some of them have been really encouraging. Lots of them have. But yeah, it's Should always going to be a Should you worry about some of other general secretaries in, in other unions who have fallen foul, had to leave quickly and left the post because of issues with women in the workplace? Yeah, well, that is completely unacceptable. I feel very angry about what you're referring to. It's not a union problem, is it? You think it's more of a, just a general problem across all business? Yeah, or, but I hold ourselves to higher standards. Yeah. I think it is something that you see in every walk of life and it, frankly, is covered up in some walks of life more than others. We've seen that too, but I just don't think it's good enough. I think, you know, for a movement that is majority women, why should any of us have to put up with that? Have you ever encountered sexism in a workplace since you became general secretary? Oh, now and again, yeah. You've walked in. What's the worst, most egregious oh, example? No. I think I think it is um, it is about cultures. Sometimes it's about expectations. But the good thing is, you know, there are times. Oh, I don't know. Stuff has been said to me or whatever, and when I've challenged it they've immediately realized I bet. they've done wrong and yeah. said sorry and sometimes a sorry goes a long way so mm. you know we've all got to learn none of us are perfect and that's understood but some of assumed you know, behaviors are actually inappropriate behaviors yeah, but we can learn and we can change together what i won't accept is the idea that in britain today particularly for young women you've got so many young women who still won't report it because they have no faith that anything will be done about it and they end up leaving mm. rather than it being dealt with and what that, is your advice to those women young women in a workplace it's just speak out call it out Speak, speak join out, the union, but join the union, out. of course, because I know why. So I've spoken to loads of young women who feel isolated, humiliated. There's a stigma. If I speak out, is that going to cast a shadow over me forever? Am I going to be seen as a troublemaker? You know, all of that, when you're at the beginning of your working life, can feel like a huge pressure. And also, you're often in a state of shock when those things happen. It takes a while to figure out that was wrong. That should never mm. have occurred. So, yeah, I think in the end we have to mm. band together as the only way to deal with this. You're brought up in a family steeped in trade unionism. Your dad was a shop steward in Cowley, now, now the mini plant, of course, and your brother was a miner involved in the 84-85 strike. What advice would you give to the 12-year-old Frances O'Grady? <laughs> You're about was. to enter the Lords. You're about to put the ermine <laughs> on. I mean... Yeah, I'm not sure... What was I doing at 12? At 12, I was doing my paper round. <laughs> I think I was quite stroppy about that because, as I've said before, I was quite small for my age and it was a really heavy bag and I had a rubbish bike. <laughs> and also, it's left me with a, a lifetime hatred of getting up really early in the morning. <laughs> if I, One of the things I have failed in my general secretaryship to do was ban breakfast meetings. I always said, 
if I had power, that's what I'd do. Because also, you know, when you've got kids and stuff, yeah. there is nothing worse than how are you supposed to sort out childcare for seven o'clock in the morning? Well, you can't do. No. Yeah, it's anti women. So, anti women. <laughs> so it is, but that's one of my. F- Big failures, okay. I think. I've got one last question. It's a difficult one. One last Go question. On. Go on. Your last question is TUC, General Secretary. Have you ever kissed a Tory? <laughs> no. <laughs> <laughs> but, Chris, if you're offering... Oh, Francis, my politics are my own. No one knows what I do. Francis O'Grady, thank you. Now, my next guest is Robert Halfon, a Minister of State in the Department of Education and one of the most outspoken and campaigning MPs as a backbencher. Now in government, he's taken that campaigning zeal to try and support students who have had quite a hard time during the COVID crisis. He's also unusually a member of a trades union. Robert Halfon, welcome to Chopper's Politics. Do students get a raw deal? Well, first of all, Good morning, and it's lovely to be here, being given good coffee. I've been even given one of your wonderful mugs, which will (laughs) go to my office at the DFE and add to my collection of about 100 political mugs at home. Well, not quite 100, because my wife keeps throwing them out, but uh, (laughs) there's too many. Uh, I, I've got I have got some Thatcher ones, so yeah, yeah which but, you personally uh, collected when you were campaigning. Uh, which I got when I because uh, my first Tory conference I went to was 1989. I think I've been to almost every one. Goodness I know I'm a, a sad. So you haven't bought them on eBay. You've actually got them when you've been. Oh out. yeah, and all the, the conference or campaigning. I've still got an Ed Miliband bottle of beer. You know the wow. But listen, but students. Yeah, to ask about the day job first of all. What I would say is the, the important thing is we still have some great universities in our country, and I'm not just talking about traditional Oxbridge. I'm talking about fantastic universities that do vocational uh, training to make sure that we meet our skills needs of our country, and that get students good jobs, good jobs at the end. So many students have a have a, have a great experience, uh, but there are uh, some universities where students aren't getting enough face to face teaching. Um, we know that uh, during COVID, students uh, struggled um, enormously. It was an incredibly difficult time. And m- my own view is that if um, you pay that loan over £9,000, um, you should be getting the required yeah. face-to-face teaching. What, what we're saying is there should be transparency. So universities should be absolutely clear before you apply how much face-to-face teaching and online learning you're going to mm. do. And make sure that the whole purpose of a student is, is of course, it's about getting an education, having a brilliant experience. But the, what's the main aim of going to university? To get a good, skilled job. How about refunds the for the universities that don't give that experience? Well, where, what I think should happen is that, so in fact, we're looking, we're working with the OFS, with universities, looking, looking at the universities that are not providing enough face-to-face teaching. I sometimes find it strange that some universities... They have a lot of business conferences and external conferences. That's all people turning up, uh, making money for the university. That's fine. But then some of those universities aren't providing enough face-to-face teaching. I don't think that is acceptable. So the OFS is looking at these universities. Student, There is a proper complaint system as well. Mm. And, of course, if, if students feel they're not getting the proper service and it's looked at by the uh, Office of, uh, of Adjudication, it's looked at by the universities. Um, then you need to look at things like, oh, well, are they getting value for money? Mm. And that's money back? Because, I mean, it's now it really is a consumer sort of supplier relationship now. Well, if you go and buy a computer at Curry's <coughs> uh, and then that computer doesn't work or doesn't turn on half the time, 
then um, you take it and you get uh, either a new computer or you get your money back. So uh, clearly these are things that uh, uh, need to be considered very very seriously. Are you keen on that, to so making it easier to get money back what I'm for key- substandard te- what teaching? I'm, what I'm keen on is that uh, if the university is absolutely transparent, they should be providing the majority of teaching should be face-to-face. If you want Zoom in a room, you shouldn't be paying 9,200 quid to no. get it. no. Uh, it's not acceptable. There are great online universities. So I'm a big fan of oh, Open yeah, yeah. University. I think that's, in my view, it's one of the great universities of the country because they help the disadvantaged climb up that ladder of opportunity. I've been to see them. They have incredible online product, but you know what you're buying. And it's much cheaper than the £9,000. It's a remarkable university. But if, you, if you're going to a university to get that experience and live at the university on campus, you should be getting proper face-to-face teaching. Yeah. I, when I was at university at Exeter, it was the greatest time of my life. I'll never forget it. And it's where I met Sajid Javid. Uh, really? Um, we were best friends, Tim Montgomery. You were conservative there? We, we all, I was chairman of the University Conservatives. Sajid yeah. was uh, off, senior officer. Tim, I think, was the secretary. David Burrows, the former MP, was deputy chairman. Gosh. Well, it was the greatest time of my life. And so uh, I, the university experience you should get you should get that university experience absolutely yeah did you worry about how it is being a Tory university now you, I, I do hear anecdotally of rooms being cancelled and a kind of intolerance of people who are well, conservative well I don't think students. it's changed uh, to be fair because when I was at university we had the hard left on campus they glued the rooms of the the, the social science block the, the doors, doors together shut. they occupied the roof of the vice chancellor's office we fought it as conservatives and we always had battles about membership of the uh, compulsory membership of the, the student union in fact when i was at university i took the uh, university and the unions to the european court of human rights <laughs> um, yeah it was all over the papers at the time <laughs> because i felt it was wrong you had to be a member forced to be a member because you couldn't use student union facilities, it was called the Guild, unless you were a member. And, they, and you had to be a member of NUS, which at the time I, I had nothing in common with. And so, Far from um, being a student. Yeah, so though we didn't win the case, um, because they said the university was a public institution, they couldn't get involved. There was some <laughs> ruling, but um, it was amazing. I did, it was before the age of yeah. computers, I'm not that old, but hand wrote every single thing. <laughs> And we had Thatcher, went to see Mrs. Thatcher when she was Prime Minister, talking to her about it. And in the what end... What did she say about it? Well, she said, oh, she was absolutely supportive, of course. As Prime Minister? As was. Prime Minister, 100%. And she, so what happened was the, rule, the laws were then changed. In fact, we had a separate meeting as, as the, on the National Committee, because I was with Margaret Thatcher, different to the one I was talking about mm. with the student union issue. And David Davis called us all into a room in I think it was Westminster Hall for the rehearsal and terrified the life out of all of us it was like he was pretending to be Mrs Thatcher and uh absolutely terrified us and wow why because he he was well one he was classic Dave Davis I really like him by the way but very colleague now he wanted to get us all prepared yeah um and but when we went to see Mrs Thatcher rather than being a sort of fierce sort of Thatcher as they well know she was like a pussycat she was really kind in fact my stick fell behind the common sofa I always remember I had one walking brown walking stick at the time she picked it up and gave it gave it to me you know it's these kind of moments you remember for the rest of your life briefly back on on, on being at university if you're um if you have conservative values do you worry about the culture wars that the cutting down on freedom of freedom of speech well, we're doing a lot as a government on freedom of speech. Yeah. And That's all going ahead. Is it yeah. all the, it's oh, about absolutely. all the changes yeah. in, in administration. It's all going ahead. And I think we've made a lot of progress. But there were so many things that went on. So, for example, if um, you were, let's say you're a Jewish society, 
you might invite the Israeli ambassador. So surprise, surprise, there are going to be lots of demonstrations. The university will say, OK, you can go ahead with that, but uh, um, you have to pay for your own security. Right, security guards. Now, who's going to be able to afford that if you're a small society? So that's all going to, God willing, go out the mm. out the window. So it's a duty of the university yeah. to to allow yeah. that kind of conversation. But the only thing I would say, I don't think this is all new. Um, as I said, I was at university. We had the equivalent of momentum, and um, we battled the hard left all the time. And I learned all my politics from that. Actually, it's one of the reasons why I'm a campaigner. Just a quick one on private schools. Are tax breaks for private schools defensible? Well, let's, let, let's put it this way. My father was an immigrant to this country, right? From, from Libya? From, from Libya. He was an Italian Jew. So they had to leave one because there were pogroms against the Jews. Things got really bad. My father was sent to England. My grandparents, a lot of them went to Italy because they were Italian. But anyway, he worked day and night. And literally, day and night, he was successful we suffered in the, the recession during John Major, but he sold food and veg wholesale. So I used to spend my childhood in, he would be going into the top hotels, selling stuff to the chef directly, and I'd be sitting in the bar of this hotel drinking a Coke, <laughs> literally for hours on end while they were, he was negotiating. Yeah. Okay, So I know all every single bar of every single hotel in London. But he wanted to send me to private school. The reason why I'm telling you this story, because the reason why he worked day and night, six, seven days a week, uh, was because he wanted to send me to private school. And I'm proud of it that I went to private school. So uh, I have seen incredible things that some private schools have done. And I went to Highgate. They work with a, a state school. Mm. And I've, I've seen some of the private schools do that. What I would That's sharing their charity benefit. As a charity, yes, they share exactly, their benefit, public you know, benefit. Providing teachers, supports, um, yeah. working with state schools. So I have seen that. That's important. I'd like to see a lot more of it, mm-hmm. a lot more of it. And I'd like to see you know, a lot more done to make sure that those on bursaries are from free school meal backgrounds. So that it isn't just aspirational beers, people who might be have no money at all. But to look child. harder exactly. for, for children to come here. Exactly. And I think that would solve solve a lot of the problem because I'd love, I'd love, I think. It is, so there is a problem then, you think? I don't, in terms well, of legitimacy. I, I think if you have a bursary scheme, it's got to benefit those who are the poorest, you know, really clever students who may not have any money for no fault of their own. And so my argument is actually, my argument is more, let's provide a ladder up for more people from disadvantaged backgrounds to go to these schools uh, rather than take that, that ladder away. I think I believe in the ladder of opportunity. Do the schools help themselves? Do you think they need better at... I think some are brilliant, as I said. I mean, in my old school, and I'm not just saying it because my old school, I went to see the state school because I didn't believe them, by the way, mm-hmm. you know, because I thought, oh, they're always going to say this. I spent a whole morning me with the state school that they work with and it, it really is transformative and the school has you know they genuinely have collaboration Perhaps ratios of numbers of um kids on bursaries would that be better i just, i would love i mean this is like you know this is i'm just five percent i'm not going to go, go down that but all, all i'm saying is that let's provide a ladder up and let's mm. make try and give more opportunities for the most advantage to go to these schools now you made your name as a, as a Redwall um, Tory MP, and I've known you for a decade here. And of course, uh, you blue collar, blue collar. I've got my blue collar. Blue collar, forgive me. Blue collar Tory. Of course, it's blue collar yeah. Tory. Do you worry about having um, such a, a well-off, rich prime minister? Can you understand the the values of Halfon Harlow and what yeah. he thinks? So, do you know this is uh, this is a really good question because I have you know Cameron was well off. Tony Blair was really well off. Howard Macmillan was incredibly well off. No one bats an eyelid about it. It's not about um, how much money you've got. What it is, it's about what you do as a person. And I really I respect the Prime Minister. 
I believe in him. He is passionate about, I mean, my first ever speech in the House of Commons was about apprenticeships, my maiden speech. He is passionate about skills. And he said to me time and time again, it's the reason why I backed him in the summer after mm. Sajid dropped out because of his support and passion for skills. And so I think that the, the people will judge the prime ministers what they, what they do, not their bank account. And he's the right prime minister. I think he's really you don't right. want Boris back. I, lo- I was a great fan of Boris and uh, I think Boris did some great things. I think we should all be thankful to him for the yeah. vaccine programme, particularly every time I think about it. I think he did an incredible job, but uh, you know, the past is the past. And, uh, but I support Rishi very much. I backed him because I believe that he wants to get the debt down. He wants to get the economy sorted out. Um, and he believes in the area that I'm passionate about, which is skills. Are you still a member of Prospect? Um, funny enough, I, I have been a member for many years of Prospect Trade Union. I don't think I, I have to check whether I renewed this year. I, can't, I genuinely can't remember, but I'll, I double check. But I have been a member for many years. I may not be quite there aren't at the many moment. ministers in, in trade unions, are there? How do you, yeah. how, how, what's your view of these strikes? Well, I'm against strikes. I mean, across I, the board, I, yeah. Across the board. I have massive sympathy for people who are struggling. Mm. Everyone is struggling because of the cost of living, because of the energy, energy bills, in essence. That is the, the key problem that's causing people to struggle and uh, and it was causing inflation and and of course I get it I see it with my constituents struggling but the problem is if you strike uh, you have the unintended consequence of hurting millions of people millions of people can't get to work because of the tube strikes for example um, you have businesses struggling because no one's in the pubs mm. because they can't use the trains well they're dead aren't they on Friday nights now and, and this is at London. this time when the economy is struggling when we're in a war we can't, we can't, uh, you know, the, 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 all these effects are, are even worse than they would have been. And just, just, just finally, Rob, uh, Rob Halfon, it's great to have you on the podcast here at Christmas time. You are less of the man that I have seen recently because you lost some weight. Yes. So, um, so in March, I've had, as you know, I've got bad legs and um, I was, they were getting much, much worse. And I woke up one day and I trying to get, get to the loo. I couldn't walk to the, couldn't even walk. to the loo. And uh, I was in a lot of pain. You have. Uh, I have a cerebral palsy, but my uh, I had arthritis. But my back was. A bit, I don't want to mm. get the violins out because I'm not that kind of person. But uh, and then I thought, well, I'll see a doctor. And then I, and then I went to this incredible clinic in Harlow called MGM, and they said, this is what you need to do. They're back people and leg people. I call them the smiling assassins because it really hurts. But then I've done swimming. I've, I've gone to a gym in my local area where there's a brilliant guy called Mitch who knows about orthopedic stuff. I've pushed a sleigh with, with no crutches, 30 kilos on wow. it. Wow. And, and I've swam quite a bit and I've really cut down my food, sugars, yeah. alcohol. Well, you meat. look great. But, and you've I haven't weighed myself. That's the first ever diet I've been on. I've not weighed myself because weighing yourself messes you up. Yeah. Because even one week, even if you've been on a diet and you put on a pound, it depresses you. It comes and goes. It's ridiculous. So I just thought, I'm not going to weigh myself. I just know that I have to get someone in to... And you get around Parliament on, on your wheels, don't you? I've got you? a Segway in Parliament, Segway in Parliament, which is amazing. They've given me that. My whip put an L plate on because I rang out over... First it was Mark Lancaster when he was an MP, and then recently Michael Fabricants. <laughs> so my former whip, who's a wonderful person, Rebecca Harris, put an L plate on it. She did put a parking ticket on it before because I put it parked it badly in the, in, in the comments. And you've had that all your life. You mentioned yeah. your sticks there, which, yeah. your stick which Margaret Thatcher held when you met her. Do you think that your campaigning spirit has come from the fact you have had to overcome physical disability? It's made you determined so, more than other people. Yeah, I, I actually think, I know this sounds crazy, I've been very lucky. Um, because when I was born, I didn't walk at all. Mm. 
And I, then I started walking on tiptoes, so maybe I could have been a ballet dancer rather than a politician. And the doctors wrote, literally wrote to my father saying, I wouldn't be able to do anything with my life, because that's how the attitude in those days. As you're talking, I was born in 69. Anyway, I, I've, my father found this incredible doctor in Great Ormond Street Hospital. I then had loads of operations through my life, and look at me now. You know, God decided I wasn't going to be an Olympic runner. He made me a Tory uh, politician instead. And some people may say that's a terrible thing. Some people may say it's a good thing. But... I think you have, the determination is very, very important. You have to have willpower. You need your friends and support network. I was lucky having my father and you just got to push and push and push yourself. Um, but don't ever believe you can't do it because, you know, here I am. Well, here you are and it's Christmas time. Happy Christmas to you, uh, Robert Halifon. Thank you for joining us this week on Chopper's Politics Podcast. Thank you. Now, coming up, an old friend of this podcast, Sir Geoffrey Cox on Second Jobs and Brexit. Right after this. If you're finding this podcast interesting, you may also like our new daily podcast, Ukraine, the latest. Every weekday, The Telegraph's leading journalists bring you the latest news and the most informed analysis of President Putin's invasion of Ukraine. From our newsroom in London and from the ground. The Russian machine has been ground to a halt now for well over a week, and that is just staggering. NATO has to act now. It has to do more than it's currently doing. Otherwise, in this Ukrainian MP's words, you'll have to evacuate the whole continent. One video that we found to be incorrect was bomb squads seen in the Donbass region. The metadata of this clip shows that it was created in 2019, not today. Search Ukraine, the latest, in the same place you're listening to this, and click follow so you don't miss an update. Now, 18 months ago, Sir Geoffrey Cox was involved in a row about second jobs and whether MPs should be allowed to practice, like he does, outside of the House of Commons as a barrister. It affects other people like farmers, lawyers and doctors. In his first interview since then, he's here, in the Red Lion pub, to defend second jobs and discuss, well... Brexit. Sir Geoffrey Cox, welcome to Chopper's Politics it Podcast. Is, it is a pleasure to be here, Chris. It really is. I'm Here you are in your Christmas ties, surrounded <laughs> by ivy and holly. I'm not going to kiss you. No, don't kiss me. But, uh, but Merry Christmas to you. I've got to ask you, you've been in the news this year about your outside work as a barrister. You're a Casey, a senior Casey. What's wrong with MPs having outside jobs? Well, I, I understand that it can be difficult for people the optics, as the modern expression is, can be, can be quite difficult for people to understand. But when I was a young barrister practising in the courts, it was absolutely standard and has been for years for barristers who were MPs to practise in the courts. I was led, as we say it at the bar, by numerous members of parliament, many of them Labour members for mm. weeks on end in the courts. It was just absolutely normal. Mm. And I think, I think John Smith was that John right? John Smith QC. spent thirteen months in court once, never spoke in Parliament <laughs> for those thirteen months. And it was absolutely standard for barristers to do that. Now why should that be a good thing? I think it's a good thing because you don't necessarily want a parliament that is comprised of people whose sole occupation is politics. If you want to construct a parliament purely of professional politicians, well then you can't have outside interests. Mm. But parliament has never been based on that. It's always been based on the concept that members of parliament could pursue legitimate outside occupations. It, it brings 
a diversity to Parliament, enables people to come into Parliament who otherwise might not be able to because of families and affordability. And so for all of those reasons, I think it's a good thing, unless we want to construct a monolithic Parliament of machine politicians. And are we misunderstanding what an MP is, in the sense an MP holds an office, but it's not actually a job, because they're actually self-employed within that office, aren't they? Well, there are no job prescriptions. There are no role or office prescriptions. It is left to the Member of Parliament's judgment. I mean, there are some MPs, Mm. half a dozen, who don't even turn up. Sinn Féin members of Parliament right. get elected, they take the expenses that they're entitled to, though not their salaries, and they don't even come to Parliament. I mean, what you do when you're a member of Parliament in an elected office is really a matter, a political choice. And that political choice will be judged by the electorate at the end of the Parliament. Mm. Um, and that is the principle, the theory on which our politics is based. Yes. It's never been the case that it is a nine-to-five employment. I mean, take my own case as a mm. lawyer. At the moment, the rule is that uh, the Attorney General and the Solicitor General has to be chosen from among the ranks of members of Parliament, preferably members of the House of Commons. The Attorney General's role is a technical role. It requires expertise, developed judgment, senior experience in the practice of the law. Very few people know the exquisitely complex decisions that an Attorney General is having to take, often life or death decisions. Two-thirds of which you won't tell us about. I simply couldn't. Mm. And those judgments are made quickly. They are highly complex in the multiple facets and dimensions of legal problems that they present. Mm. Unless you have somebody with up-to-the-minute developed and senior experience to take them, the role simply can't survive in its current form because you need people with, with developed technical expertise. And the alternative will be not to have somebody who's an MP, but have just a lawyer. That's what the alternative will be. And having the current situation means you have a lawyer who is also answerable to Parliament, so it has a democratic wrapper on that job, which is important. That, that's the critical theory on which the whole of our Constitution is based. The Attorney General straddles two worlds. He straddles the legal world currently... In current practice in the legal world, he's the ceremonial head of the legal profession, the bar at least, and at the same time he is an elected politician. He sits in the cabinet and his role is critical. Mm. His role it is to be the decisive arbiter of what is lawful within the executive mm. until it's submitted to a court. And we saw this, uh, didn't we, big moments in our constitutional history. You were there in April 2019 with your judgments on whether Theresa May's deal meant we were leaving the European Union or not and you came down into the latter camp and many would say saved Brexit for Brexiteers or meant meant that we actually are leaving rather than being subject to EU um, rules going forward and of course we're back into 2003 don't we in the Iraq war ruling these are moments when you're in the House of Commons defending a letter or a legal note that you've done for the Prime Minister and that's Maybe as it should? Well, I think it is, because it's accountable to Parliament. People can see the democratic process working. These decisions are not being taken in the dark by unelected officials. They are accountable decisions. Even decisions of law are accountable decisions. And what I would say to you about the role of the attorney is, and the Solicitor General, unless you have people of independence of mind, willingness 
not to take party interest as his primary or her primary consideration, yes. then you will undermine the standing of the office and you will get bad advice. Uh, and, and what I would say, Chris, about this is that independence of mind is critical to the role of attorney. And he will or she will only be able to be independent if his occupation does not lie exclusively within politics. Because you were. So when you took your choice, it would be a hard letter to write, I imagine, because it's not what Theresa May wanted to see at the time. But you wrote that letter because you had your own legal reputation on the line there and you had to do your best for the law, not for your political uh, hat. You see what I mean? I, I took very seriously the tradition of independence of law officers, mm. that is to say, political independence. And I, mean, I may say... However infuriating that might be for your political I, I, leaders. I, I, I'm afraid, yes. And, and But I took the view it was more important for this country that its mm. Attorney General should speak the truth than it was to bend or manipulate his advice or her advice for a particular party purpose. And I should say to you that the Prime Minister of the time, Theresa May, never put a feather's weight of pressure on me. The system worked as it should have done. The Prime Minister observed the strictest fidelity to our constitutional principles. And those principles are precious. And at their heart is the Attorney General. And if you are to have an Attorney General in the House, Yep. You have to have a practising barrister. Only a tiny minority of, of senior KCs can become an Attorney General. But the, 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 there's been a much larger group of other MPs with professions, doctors, solicitors, barristers in your case. And you said before it's a political choice. Yeah. Does it ever come up on the doorstep when you're campaigning yes. in Torridge oh, yeah. and West Devon? No, 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 no. And they say, well, why are you working? We see in the papers you're earning yeah. this much doing that for somebody else, different client, not your political work. And, and what do you say? Do they mind? I mean, Well, I can honestly say it comes up at every single election. My opponents make it uh, at the very forefront of yes. their campaigns. I'm, I continue <laughs> to be re-elected, and it is the greatest professional privilege of my life to represent the people of Torridge and West Devon. It is my overriding priority. I live there. It's my home. I've lived there for more than 22 years. My father was schooled there. My family of all from Devon going back You're a Devonian. It is, it is to me the passion of my life to Now stand. what do you say though when someone says, when your opponents say to you he's only a part-time MP for you he's really earning money for himself with big clients in the city? Well it may be not my sole occupation but that doesn't mean it's not full-time, in the sense that I never do less than a full-time week on my parliamentary responsibilities. It's part of my life. Mm. And what I say to them is what I've said just to you, that the value of having people who are not solely and exclusively politicians, mm. professional machine politicians, mm. is important in the House of Commons. And so far, given the fact that I think my constituents have been able to see those who I hope mm. are impartial and fair-minded, mm. that I'm deeply committed to the constituency. Mm. They've done me the honour of re-electing me. And that's the way it mm. should be judged. It shouldn't be judged by a commissioner or a bureaucrat put to yes. determine how long, uh, how much, to what extent Which, you what, are What Labour are looking at doing now? It might become an issue at next election. Well, you can't determine to what extent you should be doing an, uh, yes. the, the role of Member of Parliament, to what extent you should be doing any other. You've got to leave that choice to the electorate. It's a political choice. Mm -hmm. 
how on earth would you deal with Sinn Féin then? No. Um, if they're not, if they can uh, exercise the political choice of not even coming to Westminster at all. And they take expenses, as you, as you say. They do. But not a salary. Not a salary. Not being MPs not a salary. here. How, how was it last year when you were under fire for that work you did for the British Virgin Islands? Well, it wasn't pleasant. But if you put yourself into the public eye, and, and you do as a member of parliament, you've got to take the brick bats. And I completely understand why those of your profession and members of the public find it hard to understand. It, it's, it, is, it is odd, and I have to say, if I had my time again, I'd, I'd look again at the decisions I took then, particularly in going abroad at the time. Of course, that was a time when we were being told not to come to Parliament. Yes. We couldn't go out into the constituency. Right. It was all being done remotely. But I didn't properly take into account how it would appear, yes. and, and it's very difficult. I think what I would say is you know, I've got no complaint. If, if this is a legitimate subject of public debate, yeah. your profession want to debate it, what sort of politician would I be, leave alone beside the lawyer bid, if I wasn't willing to debate it? When the Guardian write you earn, earn six million pounds in 16 years and outside earnings, that's a lot of money, isn't it? It is. And, and but I guess you've got Richard, to remember, Richard Sunak, of course, is a well, bigger fortune. I, 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 there's always, there are always littler fleas on bigger <laughs> fleas on their backs to bite them. But I, what I would say to you is this, that yes, but it represents 40 years of building a practice and a following and a reputation mm. at the bar. At the bar, you're as good as your last case. It's only your professional reputation for the quality of what you do mm. that leads to you having a following that enables you to, to, to sustain that size of practice. And I would say to you this, I mean, my constituents know that in me, they have a barrister who is moderately successful at the bar, who is in demand from others are in the toughest competitive market you can get, uh, I would argue that you know, that is something valuable for my yeah. constituents. And my legal experience in every surgery I do, and I do them regularly, is put at their service certainly for free. The worry is you could be the last of your kind, don't you think, in politics? There's such as a noise about second jobs. It's important that people defend them in, in a way you have done today. Because we are, I, I we are enriched in public life by having people like you in Parliament. The role of a Member of Parliament is an office. It's an elected That's office. We've had people who are mayors as well as Members of Parliament, councillors as well as Members of Parliament. We've had people who practice in all sorts of fields, in professions. What about those who have a farm? Are they to stop farming it, stop taking the decisions connected with their farm? What if they have businesses? Mm. Yes, they may not be able any longer to be micro-controlling their business, but they may want to take strategic decisions. Mm. Are we to exclude all of these people from participating in our democracy? If you believe, as I do, in a citizen's democracy. That is to say, a, c a citizen MP, he is doing other things. He comes in to share his time and to give public service back to the country. Uh, but he is able to return and continue while he's doing so those occupations that he originally had. It gives him independence of mind, so, so, Chris. It, it, you you yes. know when a whip comes up to you. And if your career and your livelihood and your family's livelihood depends only on your political advancement up the greasy pole, you're not likely to be able very easily to say no. But if you know that you have the comfort of an alternative career, you can be independent-minded. And just finally on Brexit, um, I think for, for many you did 
you did save the Brexit that we have now by not going with Theresa May. You also probably stopped the Tory party from splitting and becoming united around one idea, I think. Had uh, Theresa May gone ahead, the party would not be in the position it is today, which is in government, frankly. How is Brexit going? Are you a bit depressed about how it's going, or do you think it's been grasped, the opportunity has been grasped by by the by officials, by, by Whitehall, by your colleagues? That's a, a subject for a, a, a wholly different conversation, it, which it, I'd love to debate with you sometime. Let me say, in a nutshell. Just briefly, in, in a it's nutshell, Christmas. We got it done. Boris kind of, kind of. It, 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 no, we've got it. Done. Northern Ireland we, would say not. Northern, Northern Ireland, Northern Ireland is Brexit. Um, you could argue that there is un- incomplete business, but Northern Ireland is unique. It's, as we lawyers say, sui generis. I think where I regret is that we've been knocked off course in the mm. last three years. I think we should have developed a plan very early on to target, say, six areas where our strengths were world-class, and we should have really intensely gunned the motor to exploit those areas, um, we can have a consistent focus on really developing the strengths of this economy where we can. And financial services, I would say, wouldn't I, legal services, fintech, pharma, all of these areas are our strengths where we have a kind of intellectual hold and those are the i think personally i'd want to see a minister for developing those opportunities and driving it across the government but we've had so much soap opera chris for yes. three years that it's knocked us which you are, de- are deflected our attention you broadly sat out didn't you you watched it while boris imploded and the rest you weren't on the side well, it, it was great sadness to me because i was a great supporter of boris i supported him to the end i, I thought that the decapitation of a prime minister who'd won a great election victory was a, a very big step to take but i completely accept that boris lost the confidence of the of the House, of the party, of parliamentary and party. And your confidence to the leader? I, I, look, it was severely shaken. I, I got to be honest about that. And I was a backer of his. I had absolutely no um, mm. compunction in continuing to back him after I left the government. And I think the record shows that I did. But I think the problem with Boris is that Boris was fundamentally unsuited to the discipline of government. What it needs then is a patient, steady application (laughs) and focus. Well, perhaps some good advisors to keep him on track. In the moment, I think we've got a good leader and a man who I think can take us forward. I shall be supporting him strongly. Well, Sir Geoffrey Cox, thank you for joining us this week on Chopper's Politics Podcast. Great to have you on again. Very great pleasure. Thank you to all my guests this week, Sir Geoffrey Cox, Robert Halfon and Francis O'Grady. Thank you to my producers, Louisa Wells and Giles Gear. But most importantly of all, thank you to you for listening all this year. I'm taking a short break now for Christmas. If you want to hear more of my inside thoughts about Westminster, do sign up to my daily Chopper's Politics newsletter. The link for that will be in the show notes for this episode. And please do check out my weekly Peterborough Diary column out every Friday evening on the website of The Telegraph at 7pm and in Saturday's copy of The Daily Telegraph. And do remember, if you can, please buy a copy of the Daily Telegraph. I know you won't regret it. It'll keep you entertained when the family are getting, well, a bit too much. So until next time, it's cheerio from me. And with an extra special festive treat, here's Sir Geoffrey Cox reading a passage from Dylan Thomas's A Child's Christmas in Wales. Happy Christmas. 
Years and years ago, when I was a boy, when there were wolves in Wales and birds the colour of red flannel petticoats whisked past the harp-shaped hills, when we sang and wallowed all night and day in caves that smelt like Sunday afternoons in a damp front farmhouse parlours, and we chased with the jawbones of deacons, the English, and the bears, before the motor car, before the wheel, before the duchess-faced horse, when we rode the daft and happy hills bareback, it snowed and it snowed. But here, a small boy says, it snowed last year too. I made a snowman, and my brother knocked it down, and I knocked my brother down, and then we had tea. But was that was not the same snow, I say. Our snow was not only shaken from whitewash buckets down the sky, it came shawling out of the ground and swam and drifted out of the arms and hands and bodies of the trees. Snow grew overnight on the roofs of the houses, like a pure and grandfather moss, minutely ivied the walls, and settled on the postman, opening the gate, like a dumb, numb, thunderstorm of white, torn Christmas cards. Were there postmen then, too? With sprinkling eyes and wind-cherried noses, on spread frozen feet they crunched up to the doors and mittened on them manfully, but all that the children could hear was a ringing of bells. You mean that the postman went rat-a-tat-tat and the doors rang? I mean that the bells the children could hear were inside them. I only hear thunder sometimes, never bells. There were church bells, too. Inside them? No, no, no. In the bat-black, snow-white belfries, tugged by bishops and storks, and they rang their tidyings over the bandaged town, over the frozen foam of the powder and ice-cream hills, over the crackling sea. It seemed that all the churches boomed for joy under my window, and the weathercocks crew for Christmas on our fence. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Summer's just around the corner, so give your body the care it deserves with Osea's best-selling Andaria Algae Body Oil. Created by infusing Andaria seaweed in barrels of botanical oils, it leaves skin silky soft and glowing. Plus, it's clinically proven to improve elasticity and deeply moisturize without feeling greasy. It's safe, clean, vegan skincare. Get 10% off your first order at oseamalibu.com with code GLOW, plus free shipping on orders over $60.